This sermon was recorded at Christ Church, Jerusalem. Blessed by our teaching? Consider saying thank you with a financial gift at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Our worship continues now with the public reading and study of the Word of God. Uh, Because we believe that God has given many gifts to His people, one of which is His Word, then at the end of every reading we have a call that says, this is the word of God. It's a public declaration of which we acknowledge in most thankfulness by saying, thanks be to God. The first reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Psalms. Chapters 33, verses 12 through to 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel is Luke chapter 12, verse 32 to verse 40. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. To the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief 
where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house been broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, so my name is Yoel Ben David. Um, and uh, I live here in Jerusalem. Um, I was uh, born here, but as you can tell from my accent, I was not raised here. Anybody want to guess? That's it, Brighton, England. Well done. You got it first time. For those who like the Premier League, I am a seagull through and through. But this morning, we're going to be talking about a different kingdom. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And those who have their Bibles with them uh, should get it out because I am um, a naughty priest. And I shall be going beyond the reading um, all the way into the uncomfortable part of the passage where people get cut up into pieces. So open, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. um, And we're going to go all the way through... um, to um, the end of this little talk about the master and his servants. Okay. But first we have to ask the question, what is the kingdom? What on earth are we talking about? When he says here um, in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, um, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? So I'm going to try and explain it by getting into a specific Greek word. Because we all love Greek in sermons. It makes you think that I know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so there you go. Um, the word I want to talk about, though, isn't in Luke. It's in chapter 19 of Matthew. And in 19, verse 28 of Matthew, it says this. And you'll forgive me, I didn't know that it was sort of an NIV. Well, I, when I speak from the other verses, I'm quoting from the ESV. Because um, the NIV is only the nearly inspired version. Um, no? Okay. Thank you, Aaron, for understanding my joke. Okay. So in, verse nine, in chapter 19, verse 28 of Matthew, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Okay. When he says, in the new world, he's actually using a Greek word, which is palingenesia. Palingenesia. And it basically means the regenerated world, the new world, the reborn world. And it comes from a Greek idea, or this word would have been understood by Greeks, to mean um, something that Greek people believed that was true of history. They believed that history was not linear, but rather cyclical. 
right? And in some way, they're kind of correct, that history repeats itself. It goes round and round. And every once in a while, the Greeks believed palingenesia would take place, that a ravaging fire would burn things up, that something would happen to destroy the current order, and then something new would be born from its ashes. Um, the potter lovers in the room will remember Fawkes the Phoenix being burnt every once in a while and then being born from its ashes. Um, this is what they believed would happen in history. And Jesus here is using this term not to just refer to a repeating cycle, but rather a moment in history. A moment in history where everything changes. I think it's best described, um, and you'll be noticing continual references to fantasy authors throughout the sermon, but it's best described in the words of Sam Gamgee at the end of Lord of the Rings. Um, and this is not in the movie, but it's from the book. And Sam lays back there at the end of the book, at the end of all the adventure. He lays back, he opens his mouth in bewilderment. And turning to Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? Is everything sad going to become untrue? That's what the new world is like. It's not a place that is supposed to be sort of a, a consolation where sort of evil is kind of swept under a rug or put to the side or, or we sort of like try to forget the pain that we have endured. It's a place where everything sad becomes untrue, where every painful, difficult, horrible moment of our lives turns into something beautiful and wonderful. And where we thought we would have a sad memory, we now have one full of joy. Where we used to cry, we now smile with relief and happiness. That is palingenesia. That is the kingdom that God is pointing us towards. That is the place that we are looking to. That is what he is talking about when he says to his little flock, don't be afraid, I'm going to give you this. That is what he is referring to. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's nice, but that's in the future, Yoel. How do I get palingenesia? How do I get regeneration? How do I get this thing? And it's awesome. The answer is time travel. Yeah, the Bible promises us time travel, and it's awesome. But it's not, alas, that we travel into the future. It's that the future travels in to us. The future comes into us and changes us from within. That is what the Bible promises us. And we find it in the only other place in Scripture where we hear the word palingenesia. And here again, you'll have to go to your phones and flip with me or button with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Hey, Aaron, or could I ask you, there's a big bottle of water in there. And this has got to be one of the hottest churches in the world. Okay. So Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 read like this. He saved us 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Where is palingenesia? It is the word regeneration. By the washing of palingenesia and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the moment that we were born again. Thank you so much, brother. By the moment in which we were born again, that renewal took place. Here in Titus, he describes it as the washing, right? The baptism and the Holy Spirit. We see it in Jesus' baptism. He's there and the water comes out. Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And so, for at least in the Anglican world, we see that rebirth taking place there in baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the normative place for those things to happen. And so that is the moment when we receive this. However, here in Titus, he wants us to be clear. He wants us to be clear. This is not a moral reformation. What do I mean? There are people in this world, amazing people, who are able to, through community, through accountability, through perseverance, are able to turn it around. They're able to change their life. I have known um, men and women who have suffered in addiction, who suffered through trial, and through moral reformation through talking to people, asking people for help, trying hard, have turned it around. That is amazing. And I do not want to devalue the effort that is involved in changing one's life through moral reformation. But that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about palingenesia. It's not what we're talking about when we're referring to um, regeneration. What we're talking about is that when Jesus comes into our life, When he brings that regeneration power into our world, something else happens. And C.S. Lewis, another fantasy author, writes in a non-fantasy book, thank God, um, something. He talks about the difference between moral generation and regeneration, uh, moral reformation and regeneration, um, in a description of a homeowner. He says, it is like a homeowner who invites a Um, constructor in, somebody to come in and help them with their home. And he says, I want you to come in. And he thinks that what this guy is going to come in and do is maybe touch up a few walls, paint a few things, make it just look nicer. But when when the guy comes in, he starts, he brings in a great big mallet and starts smashing walls and completely reconstructing the house. What Lewis is trying to describe is that when Jesus enters your life, he doesn't just come in and make it look nicer, right? That's not why we come to him for this regeneration, for this palingenesia. When we come to Jesus, he comes in and completely reorients what you think is beautiful. He completely changes what you think is good and what you think is wrong. He changes what you want. That's is what Jesus does. That is the regeneration that we are talking about. He takes your little cottage and he turns it into a castle with turrets and everything. He completely changes our lives. So we've talked now about what the kingdom is. That is the power of the kingdom. 
I now want to talk to you about the practice of the kingdom. What it looks like when this kingdom comes into our lives. And there are three points that I want to talk to you about that I think are spoken of quite clearly in our passage in Luke. Uh, They are radical generosity to the poor, radical service across social boundaries, and a radical awareness of our future joy and justice. But let's start off with radical generosity. Here in our passage in Luke, in verse 33, it's interesting. After he says he's going to give us the kingdom, the first thing he says is, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, I am Jewish, and I teach every week on the Parashat HaShavua, on the weekly reading. And one thing that you will know from studying the Torah is that we are commanded to give a tithe. There are different tithes for different kinds of people. Different people needed to be provided for, the Levites, the priests, all the rest. But Jesus here is interesting. He goes beyond the tithe. Because he doesn't say, make sure that you give of your earnings. He says, sell your possessions, right? This is not giving from income. This is from, this is giving, um, sorry, this is giving, not giving from income. It is giving from assets. It is giving from what you have, everything that you have. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Why? Not because Jesus is interested in money. And it's, it's interesting. Here I am, you know, a visiting priest normally doesn't talk about money. It's not, not what one would call, you know, proper behavior. It's not the code. Absolutely. You're breaking the code, bro. No, it's not the code. Um, but I can't but talk about possessions and money. Why? Well, because I'm talking about Luke, right? This is the gospel of Luke. And Luke does this all the time because Luke was writing, quite interestingly enough, to a an educated part of society. He was talking to a, I wouldn't say a well-to-do, but a middle-class part of society because the middle-class people needed to learn that they needed to think more radically about what it meant to give, to give of their possessions, to give of their life, to give of what they had, um, and to understand that they could do this. And why? Why would he do this? Well, it's because the opposite of generosity isn't stinginess. The opposite of generosity is fear. The reason that we don't give is because we're afraid. We're afraid that we won't have what we think we need to have. We won't have what we want to have. But Jesus calls us to radical generosity. He calls us to give. And he calls us the middle class. Yes, I'm talking to you. He calls us to be radical in what we do and how we care for the people around us because we have nothing to fear. We should not worry that we will not be able to pay the rent at the end of the month or the mortgage, whatever it might be. We should not worry that we won't have the food that we need to eat or the clothes that we need to wear. God will take care of us. And so be like him. Be radical in your generosity to the poor. That is what the kingdom looks like when it comes from the future, travels through time, and embodies itself in a human being. Second, he says, he says, he asks us to be radical in service across 
social barriers. So this is where we cross the boundary of the lectionary into the following passage. So I'll read it to you first. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing, whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Jesus speaks very harshly of the man who beats his servants. He speaks very harshly of the man who does what people would think is normal and usual behavior in the Roman Empire. He doesn't look upon it well. It's interesting. I often... You're very kind, thanks. Um, I often think of um, history and how in many ways we misunderstand it. I've Obviously, uh, I work, by the way, as the director of Jews for Jesus in Jerusalem. And in many conversations with atheists, in many conversations with people who don't believe in God at all, um, they assume that the Greek world and the Roman world, the, the roots of humanism, that these things, are, these are places where we will find a love for all mankind and a, and, a, and a goodness and a charity towards all people. And it's religion that has brought division and hatred into the world. But it's interesting that that's not true at all. It's Aristotle and Plato and Greek philosophers who thought that people of different classes were less than human, were less than you, and that you could treat any non-Roman or non-Greek in any which way you like because they were clearly less than you. These people were racist in ways that people don't understand, especially in the West. And I won't even say what they said about women. It is Jesus, it is Christianity that brought the understanding that all people of all classes, of every race and every gender, are to be loved and seen as equals. Jesus comes in and sees this behavior of this master and says, that's not how you're to behave. That's not the community, the society that we are bringing into, bringing into life here. And when he speaks of himself, how does he speak of himself at the beginning? He says this, he says something that is incredibly strange to people of that time period. He says, truly I tell you, he, the master, in verse 37, he will dress himself to serve. What does that mean, he will dress himself to serve? It actually says he will gird himself, right? He will tie up his, his garment, this long we don't call it a dress, we call it a robe, right? He will take his robe and he will pull it up and gird it, take his belt to wrap itself around him so that he can move more easily, yeah? And he will rush around like a servant. And it is the servants, the people that have been waiting for him, they will recline at table. 
They will act like the owner. They will act like the master. And he will give them and he will care for them. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus says the kingdom will be. Why? So that we will break all ideas of class. That we will change all ideas of these social boundaries that we have developed for ourselves. And understand that in the palingenesia, then the renewed world, the recreated planet Earth, those things won't be. That's not what it's going to be about. He will reunite humanity. That's what he wants. That's what he leads us to do. And that's what he's calling us to do. And then number three, a radical awareness of future joy and justice. So on the one hand, in verse 37, we see joy, right? We see a feast. And we expect that in some way when we look out into the future. But we also see right there at the end of our passage that that oppressor, that evil master, will be cut into pieces. And we see justice. And we, the middle-class Westerner, look at that and we say, ugh, really? Why is, why is God like that? Why violence? You know, and I often, by the way, I see it in, in the lectionary when we, we get the readings for the different days and the different, you know, the ugly part of the passage is sometimes skipped over, right? And I sit there and I, I will confess, I beat my Bible, yeah? I go, ah, why would they do that? Why would they skip over the uncomfortable part? Isn't that the point? Don't I read my Bible to be made uncomfortable? Because otherwise I'm just going to go on with my usual thoughts, thinking that, you know, the way that I think is perfectly good and wonderful and God agrees with me. No, I'm supposed to agree with God. Anyway, so there are violent parts in the Bible. And God says that he will not accept those people who beat others and that there will be justice. Miroslav Volf, and if you've never read Miroslav Volf and you like reading, you know, theology, nerdy stuff, then you should get a hold of one of his books. He's a Croatian Christian who went through unbelievable suffering and is now a professor and really has written wonderful books about forgiveness. Miroslav Volf will say that one of the reasons that we have violence in our world today is because we've lost a belief in God's justice. We've lost a belief in the understanding that it is God who will exact justice upon this world. He is the one that will set all things right and indeed end those who unrepentantly decide to bully and to hurt and to plunder and to rape. He will deal with that. And so that's why I can pray. That's why I can love. That's why I can forgive because I know he will. Because if I was afraid, if I thought that somehow, maybe, nothing will happen, that he will not fix these things, that there will be no justice in the end, I would have nothing to do but to respond. Someone has to do something. And that's why those passages are in Scripture, to remind you that there is a future justice. You are not the one that needs to respond and to react. It is yours to trust in him and experience inside that future joy and justice. And that is how you can live in a difficult, harsh, horrible world. A world where my son, Aaron's sons, the sons of so many, received phone calls this week 
Are you ready? Are you ready to go? We have to remember to know and to believe and to trust that his justice and his joy are coming. It's the only way we're going to survive. It's the only way we're going to get through this. And so these are the marks of the kingdom of God. A radical generosity for the poor, radical service across social boundaries, and a radical awareness of future joy and justice. How are you doing? Yeah? I'm not doing well. I am not good at that at all. I like my iPhone. I like my iPhone to be the latest iPhone. I like my games. I like ignoring and distracting myself from the harshness of the world. I like doing those things. So how am I to know? How am I to know that I'm not the guy who's going to get cut up in the end? How am I to know that he is going to love me anyway, despite these things? I go back to the beginning. And I see that I don't get the kingdom of God because I am giving. I get the kingdom of God because he enjoys and wants to give it to me. He wants to give it to me. He loves me. But if, but if it's the giving that this master hasn't done that leads him to get cut to pieces, then where is the grace still? How is, how is it all supposed to work together? Well, Jesus is the servant in this passage and not just the king, not just the master that is coming back to the house. And he says that he will gird himself up, up and care for the people of the household and love them and serve them. Now, I want us to try and get a little deeper understanding of what he means when he says he's going to serve and he's going to love. What he says is, what, he's, what I think he's saying is this, that he is going to come and to take all of what he has, all of the infinity that he has, and he is going to pour it down into every person, into every servant there in the kingdom of God. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, again, um, writes, he writes about this, and he gives us a picture, an image, that he actually says, um, he calls it dangerous. He says, I, I, he's wary of asking the reader to think about this because it can be overwhelming. Um, but this is what he asks, asks people to do. And what I'm going to do is, I'm actually going to ask you, if you're willing, to close your eyes. So everyone, close your eyes if you can, if you want to do it. And he says this, imagine, imagine the best food the best and closest friendship, the best sex, the best moment of joy, and not the, one you, not the best one you've ever had, but the best one that you can possibly imagine. And imagine that filling you up, filling you up more and more and more until it overflows and becomes overwhelming. That is what he is going to give us at that banquet. That is what he is going to pour down into every one of us. You can open your eyes. Blaise Pascal experienced that joy. 
He experienced that moment of overwhelming light being poured into himself in 1654. And he experienced it for two hours. And you know, he wrote down that experience and folded up the record of that experience and sewed it into his jacket pocket because he wanted to take it with him everywhere that he went. That's how precious and how special that moment is. That, brothers and sisters, is what I want you to know is coming for you and is living within you even right now. But so how can this be free? You haven't answered the question, Yoel. How can this work? And so that's when I, again, I have to go backwards. But this time I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis. We read in Genesis chapter 15, it was read for us, that Abraham was doubting. He was coming to God and he was doubting that God was going to fulfill his promise and give him a son. And God tries to encourage him, as we heard. And he says, Abe, look at the stars, right? That's going to be the number of your descendants. Relax, it's going to be okay. But Abe didn't get it. He couldn't see it. And so God said, all right, this is what we're going to do. I want you to take three animals. And he took three animals and he cut each animal in half. And he put each half on one side. Now, this is part of an old way of making a deal, right? This is a contract in the old world. And what happens is the master tells the servant, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to give you that. But in order to make sure that we stick to the promise, you have to walk between the carved animals. And as you do so, what you're saying is, if I don't fulfill this task that I have been given, I will be like these animals carved in half. And then what does God do for Abraham? He says, stand aside. And God walks through the carved animals. He passes through and says, it's on me that you're going to receive this blessing. It is on me that you are going to receive the kingdom of God. So how are we going to receive it? How are we not going to end up being cut into pieces? Brothers and sisters, it's because the master himself has come for each one of you. And in a place not too far away from this church, he was cut into pieces. He was pierced. He was crucified. And he died and bled for you. And then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He is king and Lord, and you have nothing to fear, brothers and sisters. If I may return to the words of our brother Tolkien. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. Brothers and sisters, I hope a great shadow has departed from your lives. I hope the future has traveled through time and entered your hearts and has changed you. Walk in that generosity. Walk in service. Walk knowing that justice and joy are waiting for you. You are not alone. God be with you. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. 
You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.